welcome to the first live Ask Me Anything session for 2021. Uh, my name is Adele. I'm a software engineer at Trifork Amsterdam. We have an awesome session lined up for you today with DevOps pioneer Dave Farley. Hi, Dave. Hi, Adele. Hi, Hi everybody. Dave is an award-winning author, uh, an independent software developer and consultant. He has a new book out on LeanPub called Continuous Delivery Pipelines, and he'll be speaking at GoTo Amsterdam Conference, which is planned for 15th to 18th of June. So the plan for today is we'll start with the pre-submitted questions. We've received quite a few, so I'm really happy about that. And we'll pick up some live questions as we go. So Dave, look, let's just get straight into it. I'm going to start with the classic interview question of tell us more about yourself. <laughs> okay, it might take some time. So uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm a software developer. I've been developing rather frighteningly. I've been working on uh, professionally as a software developer for I think 38 years. Um, and I've done all kinds of different software. Um, I was the uh, one of the authors of a reasonably influential book called Continuous Delivery. These days, I make a living largely as a consultant uh, helping organizations to uh, improve their software engineering practice. And that's probably going to be a theme for me in, in talking about some of this stuff today, because I think that's one of the things that glues together the stuff that I'm uh, that I'm passionate about and, and that I, you know, thinking about applying engineering thinking. Um, I've done all different kinds of software. I, I, I've written uh, embedded stuff, uh, operating system level stuff, large distributed systems. I kind of finished up my career as a hands-on software person um, writing mostly trading systems and exchanges and stuff like that. So any questions around architecture, high performance, coding techniques, all of those sort of things I'm absolutely cool with. Uh, also, I'm really interested in the practices and processes that allow us to do a better job. So how do we approach software development in a way that gives us a high, higher likelihood of success? And, you know, that's what I think that continuous delivery is about and some of the other stuff that I hope that we're going to talk, get to talk about today. Wonderful. So just uh, on that theme, we've already covered that you, you really were one of the pioneers of the continuous delivery and deployment movement. Um, how did you start spreading the word about those principles? And as a follow on from this, what do you think uh, the next idea will be in changing the way we produce software? Where will it come from and how will it be spread? Uh, so, so, so I, I, want, I want to answer that in two different ways. So the, the second question in two different ways anyway, one from a selfish point of view and another from a, a more general industry point of view. But, but the first question first, in terms of how we started promoting the ideas of continuous delivery, when Jez and I wrote the continuous delivery book, we were both busy working on projects. Uh, I was in the middle of building a, a financial exchange. Jez was, was starting work. I think when it was published on the, the Go team, the, the, the ThoughtWorks continuous integration and continuous delivery product. Um, and so we were busy with our day jobs mostly. So we did bits and pieces of talking at conferences and that kind of thing. But it wasn't until the book was kind of a little bit of a more of a success than we thought that we started going out and helping it along. And, and both of us were, were kind of talking at conferences and those sorts of things. Um, I think 
that in general, in terms of the success of continuous delivery uh, as an idea, which is certainly outstripped, I know what 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 Jez and I thought at, when we wrote the book. Um, then I think I think that the success of the idea is much much simpler than that. Continuous delivery works better than any other approach that we understand of how to create software, and we have data and evidence to back up that rather bold statement. Um, when we were writing the book, Jez and I were both a little bit nervous of talking about it as a methodology or an engineering practice because we were you know we were just kind of assembling these practical things that we had learned largely through screwing up lots of times on different projects until we we found something that worked better um and so um and so we were a bit reticent to talk about that i've learned more since then and now i'm a little bit more willing to to, to make some of these bolder statements because i've got more evidence i've got more, more more stuff to back up those kinds of assertions in terms of what's coming next i i think um i i think that there are some ideas that that, that really move the game on and i think that there are several of those ideas that you know I've seen through my career. I, I think that agile thinking, particularly some of the engineering principles from extreme programming around test-driven development and those sorts of things, which I think of as foundational for continuous delivery, um, were hugely influential on me. I think that agile was a liberating step in a really interesting way. In the, if you think about if you think about it, kind of from a philosophical point of view, then a waterfall approach to software development means that you have to understand everything at the start. An agile approach to software development doesn't, which means that it's unbounded. So an agile software development approach is a much, much broader spectrum. It's If you're interested in physics and have read David Deutsch's book, Beginning of Infinity, it's a beginning of infinity. It's one of those kinds of steps that liberates thinking and approach. So Agile was an important step. I think one of the craftsmanship, software craftspersonship was a huge step forward too, but I think that's not enough. I think that I think that if we start applying the one more, take one more step and start applying a little bit more engineering thinking where we start measuring using data, controlling the variables in our experiments in software, move us forward. And that's really the theme of my work these days, that's the kind of stuff that I'm working on, how you kind of apply that kind of engineering thinking and move stuff forward. So that's my kind of selfish take. More broadly in the industry, I don't think that, I, th I think that we are an industry of change, but a lot of the change doesn't matter very much because I, I, it's kind of a bit of a fashion. We, 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 we kind of, we, 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 you know, it's it's just what's, what's current today. I, I, I'm currently writing a book another book, which is going to be published later this year, I hope. Um, and one of the ex experiments that I'm doing as part of the book is I tried out writing some software using the latest web-based technology, using you know a, a modern system to write a, a simple CRUD application. And I tried doing that in the technologies that were around in 1996. And so far, I'm not, I haven't finished with my experiment, but the 1996 technology is about a quarter of the code. <laughs> Which is interesting. That there were certainly things that the new stuff was better at. There's certainly things that were, you know, the, the, the kind of cross-browser stuff and all that. The new stuff brought some things, but the programming model was more complicated. 
which is an interesting observation. So, so I think I think that it's not frameworks and things like this. What I hope is that we start to take a slightly more disciplined approach, a slightly more rational approach to the way in which we start solving problems. And that's where I think that the real huge wins are for for software development. The yeah. one more, but one more just kind of sexy technology because I am a nerd at heart. One of the technologies that kind of fascinates me is, uh, you know, on the horizon. It's been on the horizon for a while, but it is coming soon, is massive scale non-volatile RAM. If you think about the history of computing, it's nearly all, the design of our systems is nearly all about the difference between the live stuff that's in memory and being processed at a time and the stuff that we store, you know, somewhere else to slower storage. If we have massive scale non-volatile RAM, if we have terabytes of RAM, but we can turn the computer off and it just remembers everything, that's gonna change the game. It's gonna change the nature of our designs in some really interesting ways. Yeah, that's a really cool point. I hadn't heard of that, wonderful, nice. <laughs> um, so still sort of on the uh, sort of more philosophy, strategic side, um, I have a question. So firstly, thanks to Avi for the first question. And the second question is from uh, Jagandeep. And he wants to know how you include strategic domain-driven design into your work, if at all. So I, 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 I think domain-driven domain, I, I had a funny reaction when I first saw the domain-driven book by, by Eric, Eric Evans when it, when it was released. And that was... I was an old school OO guy and I was reading, I was saying, yeah, but isn't this, isn't this obvious? And then I read the book more carefully and you know, there was some fantastic things in that book. It is still, it's the book I most wish that I'd written, the Domain Driven Design book. <laughs> it's a fantastic book. Uh, and, uh, and Eric Evans is, 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 a, is, is, a, is a brilliant person. Um, I, I just love, he sparks with ideas, which, which is great. Um, but, um, so I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in domain-driven design, and, and for a variety of reasons. One is one of the key ones is that domain-driven design is a fantastic tool to really focus on the separation between essential and accidental complexity in the systems that we build. It, if we, if you care about separation of concerns in your design, domain-driven design is a tool that you can use to steer you to separate the concerns in two different dimensions, both in, within the problem domain in terms of where are your bounded contexts and all that kind of stuff, but also technically to, to separate the essential from the accidental complexity. Um, the, uh, I, 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 I've mentioned it already. I led a team to build one of the world's highest performance financial exchanges. We built the most beautiful infrastructure that allowed us to build our system. The architecture of our system meant that our day-to-day -day work was largely focused on these little pure bubbles of domain logic. And all of the accidental complexity of clustering, uh, disaster recovery, persistence even, high performance, all of those things were outside of those little bubbles. Performance, you had to write those things so that they were reasonably performant. But apart from that, you know, it was all it was all outside, and that was the most beautiful system that I've ever worked on in terms of in terms of you know a big system, but but but, but a habitable code base. Um, the way in which it plays out in my approach to development and and design is is, is on multiple fronts. So first, as I've already I think I've already demonstrated, I am I'm a fan. I'm I'm a, I'm a believer. Um, so I so I walk into a problem by trying to model a problem domain. That's where I start from. 
I try and figure out those things. And I'm, uh, you know, the thing that wasn't in Eric Eric's book, but that was that was added late, you know, added later, and he's kind of part of that community now is the idea of event storming as an analysis technique to explore a problem domain and understand what's going on. So definitely work there. The other thing that I think is probably less obvious, but is really profoundly important to me, is I take a very uh, broad view of what test-driven development means. So my preferred approach to test-driven development is that I'm going to create an executable specification for each behavior of the system that I'm trying to, each feature of the system that I'm trying to develop. And that is in the form of, in the language of the problem domain. I'm going to write something in the language of the problem domain that expresses from the perspective of an external user of the system what the user of the system wants from the system. Um, uh, and so I, I have a YouTube channel, and there's a nice, there's a little video that I did on my YouTube channel of, um, of of buying a book from Amazon. So what's you know what's a what's a test case that we could imagine to buy a book from Amazon? Well, we'd go to the store, uh, we'd search for a book with a particular name. We search for a book called Continuous Delivery. We'd put the book in our shopping cart. We'd go to the checkout. We'd pay for the book, and at the end, we own the book. That's my test case, and that's how I'd write it down in that language. If I could capture my test case in language that sounded like that as an executable thing, I could just as well apply that test case to a robot shopping in a real book bookstore, for example. I could imagine the robot driving down the street, going to the store, walking around the store, reading books off the shelf and all that kind of stuff. So th this level of abstraction decouples us almost entirely from the implementation of our system. So that's the other way in which I think domain-driven design deeply impacts on my approach to system development and design. So I will create these executable specifications as the first thing that we do. I do for a new feature, and then I'm going to underneath those I'm going to do fine-grained, more technical TDD, TDD, TDD until those specifications are met, and then I'm done. So, so I think that domain-driven design is 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 part of the kind of organizing strategy to achieve um, good, high-quality software engineering. It gives you all of these lovely properties of separation of concerns and, and you know, separation of accidental and essential complexity, and you get this kind of way of driving the design from, from you know, the consumers of the, the software, whatever that means. Like, sometimes the problem domain is technical. You know, a consumer could be another piece of software somewhere. But it's 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 always behavioural and expressed from the outside. And have you come across any strategies that help you um, uh, affect that change of mindset in your team? Because it is a bit of a shift for a lot of people, my, myself included. I know all the theory, but then in practice, it's you do become a little bit fixated, I suppose, on the technical aspects of things. I mean, we're nerdy people, most of us at heart. It's interesting right yeah. um, so what have been some strategies that you've come across to maybe really entrench that behavior so so, I, so that's that that's a great question and a really difficult one to answer but um i i i think the first strategy and the one that's kind of implicit in what i just said is that you write the test first so so so, so stop messing around writing the code and then trying to test it afterwards that's just that gets in the way. 
all of us, however, dis however disciplined and diligent we are, if we do it that way round, then the code that we just written is fresh in our heads, and we're trying to, and we end up testing the implementation rather than the behaviour. Yeah. So you, so you write the test first. You write the test before you've got any code, and if you do that, it kind of unless you're really dumb then you're going to try and make your life easy because because why would you want to make your life hard and it's much easier to write you know if you if you prefer if you select for ease of writing these tests when you're writing them before you've written the code what that tends to do is it tends to naturally drive you more towards this this behavioral viewpoint mm. I think the other side effect that's really interesting when you do that is that um, so, so if you think about what the properties of high quality code are that you know I, I would I would list I would list five so it's modular uh, highly cohesive good separation of concerns um, it, it exhibits information hiding and is loosely coupled I, I think nobody would argue with those five things so what does it take to achieve testable code if you write in the test first, well, it needs to be modular so that you can kind of see into the code. It needs to be cohesive so that if you're testing something, you're testing a behavior that's in, you know there in front of you and all of it. It needs to be um, loosely coupled so that you're not too tightly coupled to the code so that the code can move independently of the test and vice versa. Um, it needs to be um, uh, exhibited information hiding. You don't want all of the internal details to be to be represented in your test. You want to be you want the test and the code to be separated somewhat so that again they can move more independently of one another and i've forgotten which one i've left out oh abstract so you need you need the um loose coupled abstracts cohesive uh modular uh what did i miss that? separation of concerns separation of concerns you want a great separation of concerns so you can focus your test you don't want to be if you're testing some business logic you don't be worrying about the database or whatever else is going on that's all noise so i want to focus in and again that kind of drives us towards this nicer domain kind of focus i think for those pieces of the code um and so i think this is a trick so this is a good way in so i i have a few kind of mental tricks that I coach people to to apply to try and focus on on these the, these kinds of things, uh, and again based on, on writing the test. So, so when you, whenever you write a test, imagine that you throw away your implementation and replace it with something entirely different. Does the test still make sense? If it doesn't, then it's not good enough. If there's a problem of your test being too tightly coupled to the code. That's not a problem with your test. That's a problem with the design of your code. So change the design of your code. Um, the other, the other thing, particularly for these higher level executable specifications that I was talking about before in the language of the problem domain, when you're creating those, imagine the least technical person that you can think of. Could they read the test and understand what it what it means? Uh, and you know, the least person, technical person who you can, you can imagine who understands the problem domain, could they understand what's what you're talking about? If they can't, you haven't got the language right. You haven't got the abstraction right. Right. So, so I think I think that's that's key. And, and a lot of this is to do with one of the kind of primary evils, as I see it in software development, which is coupling. The, the the biggest stumbling block to scaling up to good designs to the ability to make changes in a code base is coupling really if we had loose you know narrowly focused little bits of code that i could you know i can change independently of other parts of the system that's a nice kind of code base to work on 
if I touch the piece of code here and it's likely to break your piece of code over there, that's an unpleasant kind of code base to work on. It's so, not working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so coupling is the enemy. Coupling is the thing that we need to be at the forefront of our mind all of the time and working to just, just manage. We want, we, we want to think about that really carefully. Well, there's some really good points that I'm going to read in this video later. I can be a little bit um, guilty when it comes to writing the code and then the test. So I think this is some really good advice. I'm definitely going to revisit that later and really try to uh, craft that or push myself to be more disciplined in that respect. Really appreciate it. So, okay. so, what, what, so, so one, one more thing. I'm just, I'm just going to push my YouTube channel. I've got some videos on all of these things, which, are, which, which will help you with that. There's, there's a really nice one on coupling, which is about how do you build big software with small teams? Uh, and there's, there's, there's a whole series of things about test-driven development, acceptance testing, and so on. So go along to YouTube, search for continuous delivery, you'll find my channel. Yeah, I watched a few, a few videos in preparation uh, for this event, and uh, yeah, it's still, it's really great content, and it still just amazes me that there is such high quality free content available on the internet. I mean, it's a great time to be alive. Yeah. Uh, pandemic aside, it's still a great time to be alive. So this is quite a long question, but I'm going to read it in full because I think it's a situation that maybe a lot of people can relate to. So I'm quoting directly the asker of this question who is Lars. So Lars says, I'm surprised by how some of my colleagues reacted negatively when we introduced quality gates into our build pipeline. This was done from the very beginning of the project, so only new code was affected. For example, with Sonar Cloud, CPD, SpotBugs, uh, Rekoko at 80%. These tools help us write better and more consistent code, and some of us were quite happy, but others saw it as completely obstructing their work. And after they complained to management, we were actually forced to disable quality gates. Why do we as developers respond so differently to quality gates being forced upon us? Is there any advice you have on how to handle this? I, I, I can certain I absolutely give you my take on why that's the case and what it means when it's the case. I can probably talk a little bit about ways to get around it, but but th this is one of those things where the, the really difficult part in software development is us. It's people and, and and getting people to think differently and to change the way in which they approach their work is incredibly difficult for even small groups of people, let alone when you start talking about large teams and so on. So, so, so this there are always problems around you know these kinds of issues. I think, I think, I think that one of the things that we have done that I think is desperately problematic for our industry uh, is that we kind of abdicated the responsibility for the software that we create we've tried to you know hand that over you know if 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 as if we don't know how to build something it's because people haven't told us the right requirements if we uh, if we don't understand the problem domain it's people didn't write that in the requirements properly if we get the ui wrong it's because somebody didn't do the ui design properly we're software developers, and our job is solving problems, not writing code. Code is the tool that we use to solve problems. And so I think 
sorry, I'm very opinionated on this. So I, I, I apologize if I'm treading, you know, treading on it, trampling anybody's um, sacred cows, or, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, in this. But I think that, um, I think that we've got to suck it up. We've got to take more responsibility. The best teams that I've worked on, the software development team, felt responsible they felt that the so that the system in production was their product yeah was whatever that is you know that's the job that's that's your job your job isn't to write some code and get some brownie points because you wrote more lines of code than the next person or anything like that and i think that one of the reasons why people and 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 we 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 we've fed and perpetuated a whole culture, organizational cultures and co development culture around this kind of thinking. It's really, really common for, I hear it nearly every time I go into a new organization is, oh, I'd like to do all the stuff that you talk about, but my manager won't let me. Or uh, we'd really like to do tests, but we don't have time, we've got a deadline to hit. I, I, I don't, I don't, I find it really, really hard to understand that kind of thinking because the stuff that I talk about is measurably the most efficient way that we know how to write software. Uh, it's measurably the best way that we know how to write high-quality software. So if we were being rational and we looked at the data, everybody would do the stuff that I'm talking about because that's, you know, that's, that's what works. And this is the stuff that happens in all organizations, you know, the really successful organizations. This is the kind of approach that they work. Now, it's stuff that we've learned relatively recently in the history of software development, but it's important stuff. The difficulty is if we abdicate the responsibility for parts of this process to managers in the organization that don't really understand what it is that we do they're going to make bad mistakes and they have if if people start pushing people and asking them to uh, um you know speed up by by reducing quality that's just stupid you might get away with that for a week you're not going to get away with it for a month because you but after a month your code will be costing you more than it than it did you know um than you saved because you'll be fixing bugs and reacting, you know, being slower on development because the code, the quality of the code is crap, and, and so on. So, working with high quality, taking responsibility for the quality of our work, is important. I think I think of it as a professional duty of care. If if you employ me to write software, I am not going to ask you for permission to do a good job. I'm just going to do. I'm going to assume that you employed me and you're going to want a good job. If you if you hire me and you want me to do a bad job, I'm going to go and find somewhere else to work. If I'm honest, um, but you know, I, I think it's important to kind of own that responsibility. Now, this isn't this this isn't probably maybe isn't the argument that's going to convince everybody. If if your colleagues are saying you're slowing me down by making me do quality things, then that's a big problem. Um, so, how do you practically start to address that? I don't know anybody that's really worked the way that I describe that doesn't prefer it to the way 
that most people developers now that doesn't mean that there aren't people that don't argue against it but they don't argue against it if they've tried it i don't know anybody that that, that does because it it focuses you on the stuff that we all love that we're all passionate about software development that that, that lovely moment of discovery when you get to solve a problem that you know that the insight that you get we, ah if i do that this code's going to get simpler and clearer I, I can make change safely i can move really quickly because i've got the backup of good tests and you know feedback on the quality of my and effectiveness of my work all of the time as i'm working and that's a very very addictive drug <laughs> so, part, so part of it is trying to find ways organizationally where you can start drip feeding that to people and the, the easiest way to start doing that is to try and solve a problem that they've got uh, and, and and try and figure out how you can help them solve a problem that they've got but you demonstrate you know through what I think of as better engineering how that solves the problem that they've got uh, and that starts to get people even even the people that are reticent you know it starts to get to get people more on your side there's another trick that i have tried and i read about from i think i read about it in linda rising's book about fearless change about change patterns uh, in organizations um but the idea is is that if you're trying to if you are trying to effect a change in the way of working in an organization you're definitely going to get some people that push against you and one of the ways in which you can do that is if there are people that are really really angry and and against you go to them and engage with them and say you clearly disagree with what you're doing will you take that position please I'm not asking you to change, but argue against me and have the debate, make it official. And often you can kind of win them over. It feels like a bit of a trick, but that having them being recognized, people like being recognized, you're not rubbishing their decisions. You're just trying to normalize the ability to have a conversation that tests an idea. And that way you can explore the ideas. They can challenge any you know things that you come up with. And then you you kind of react with with you know evidence data expert so okay well you maybe you've got a good point how could we try that out and all of these sorts of things and if you do that you're going to end up where i am not where they are you know, i'm not saying i'm always right i'm just saying that the stuff that we talked about so far is you know that works and that's the better way of doing it because we've got the evidence so i have another question from avi which just came up while you're speaking i think you partially addressed it but let's just be really explicit on it so they say thinking about uh, quality gates, you'd want to be able to show management that gates help, but how can you do that without it taking months? So how do we make good decisions in a timely manner? So, so, so I, I think I think that's a fundamental of continuous delivery. I would argue that continuous delivery, you know, if you wanted sound bites to capture what continuous delivery is about, it's about working so your software is always in a releasable state and achieving that and optimizing for fast feedback and the the target that i set my clients to aim for is that you want to know that your software is in a releasable state at least multiple times per day so at least twice per day ideally my recommendation is that you want to be able to get it in under an hour now that may say, if you're working on a big legacy system if you're working on something you know technically complex that may sound ridiculous and impossible mm. but it's not 
you can do this if you believe that it's important enough to do it. Just as one example of, you know, uh, being able to do that. Volvo trucks apply continuous delivery. Inside of modern Volvo truck, there are 18 different computing devices um, talking to one another in a sophisticated network. There is something in the region of 80 million lines of code. Um, it used to take them six months to get one, you know, a single line change in code into a truck on a test track. It now takes them 20 minutes. Nice. Imagine the difference in, 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 in working on that feedback cycle. So, so just optimizing to reduce the feedback cycle. The gates, the quality gates are important, but if a quality gate slows you down, that's a huge problem. There mm. is data from the State of DevOps report that says that things like change approval boards or you know, manager sign-off and stuff like that are negatively correlated with quality. If you, if you have a change approval board, you're making worse software, not better. That's what the data says. So working with really fast feedback and engineering to get that feedback so efficiently that you can get clarity on where you are as you're developing things, that's the real game. Now, to get there, depending on where you're starting from and how complex your software is, it might, be, it might take you years but the advantages are so huge if you can get there that it's worth the effort. And that doesn't mean you're doing nothing for years. Every little step along the way improves things. So you're going to get – so I usually say that's kind of an activation energy. You're going to start off three or four months being slower in a big organization with a large legacy code base. You're going to start off three or four months being slower as you learn the new techniques. After that, you'll be faster than you ever were before, and you'll continue to accelerate from then on. To be more efficient from then on so so it's i think that's so yeah absolutely my, my ambition is to work with very very high quality i i, I think I, i've worked on systems that are higher quality than most people have experienced i think i'm not saying that to boast i'm just saying that the end the engineering practices practices that i'm discussing allow us to do that. When we released our exchange, it was in production for 13 months and five days before the first defect was noticed by a user of the system. That's how high quality that system was. And we could get an answer to any change to our entire enterprise system in under 57 minutes. So part of this is just believing that it's possible because yeah. it sounds so extreme. It sounds so ridiculous. Yeah. But it is, and you can do it on massive scale in complicated software, but you've got to believe and you've got to start doing the engineering to start improving things. And that's about getting more control, exerting more control, applying this kind of engineering thinking that I'm talking about more and more and more and more until you're you know, at the extreme where I'm talking about. Yeah, it's it's not an easy job, but it's a, it's an important job, and I guess that's how you've made a career out of it, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's one of the, one of the things that I love about this job, I, I, I suppose I'm weird, but I I like that it's hard. I I, I like the hard problems. I the, I I enjoy <laughs> the reason. I, I had a fantastic job. I was working at ThoughtWorks, the, uh, the 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 consultancy, and I was the senior tech in the UK in ThoughtWorks at the time. I was I was kind of traveling around advising them on 
on, on, on the projects. And I had a really, really great job. And a friend of mine came along and says, we've got a problem. We've got no clue how to how to solve. It's really, really technically hard. We've got no no idea how to do it. And, and I went away and did that. That was building this, this, this financial exchange because it was just such a lure because nobody knew how to do it. Um, and so, so I love those kinds of problems. I love the really hard problems. But that's that you know, software development, even even what looks like simple software development, it's an illusion. Software is mm -hmm. very very slippery stuff. It's very mm -hmm. easy to get into really quite seriously deep water quite quickly in software. As soon as you do anything that's concurrent, you know, concurrent, you're kind of up there close to how complex um uh, quantum physics is it's it's yeah. really really difficult stuff and i think i think that trying to paint over it and, and make make you know pretend that it's simple is 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 wrong so facing up to the complexity i think is part of the game so if it's this complex how do i protect myself from the complexity yeah not by making it more complex not by making it more complex doing everything that i can to keep everything that i'm working on as simple as i can yeah, so I'm just going to do a little bit of a shift because um, uh, certainly from, from my background, it's not something I have a lot of experience from, but I'm quite interested by this question. So this is in relation to embedded systems. It comes from Lars again. Um, so do you have any experience or advice on bringing CD principles to embedded platforms? Yeah. Um, specifically, some kind of automated test bench is probably needed, according to Lars. But do you have any recommendations for things to consider when setting it up? Yeah, it's it, it's 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 a very common question, and of course, depending on, I'm just going to slightly broaden the, my answer a little bit. Mm -hmm. the, the the technology of your system is going to have an impact on how easy it is or how complicated it is to apply some of these ideas, but it is applicable. So I've. I, um, it's a long time since I wrote any embedded code myself. So, uh, so, so now I am talking largely as somebody that was that was leading teams or, or, or advising teams that that were doing this. But, but yes, I've got a fair bit of experience. I worked in a training company where we were doing um, um, oh, my, my, what what the 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 things that process process program ASICs the um, FPGAs, field program aggregator A's. We were, we were doing FPGA programming and we did that in using continuous integration, continuous delivery. Now, if you when you're programming an FPGA, there's there's a there's a cycle. It takes you a while to burn the silicon. That's that that's physics. There's a process that you can't speed up. And so what you do is that you do way more testing in simulation. And that's the key nearly always when you start talking about software that's really close to the hardware. I one of my clients that I've been working with for a few now, years now builds very, very sophisticated scientific instruments. And they build the whole stack from, from um, the hardware, firmware that operates on that hardware, device drivers that operate on that, the operating systems that, that kind of drive that hardware and firmware, the, and, and all up the stack until you're in kind of cloud-based solutions distributing information. And the hardware teams are some of the more hardcore continuous delivery teams because it gives them such an advantage to be able to test their stuff. And again, you test it in simulation. This is how this is if you think if you start thinking about engineering, I'm a space nerd. So one of the things that comes to my mind is either SpaceX or NASA. And if you think about NASA, NASA didn't build the Curiosity rover by 
by sending it to Mars and seeing if a problem occurred and then getting a bug report, they had to simulate all of that stuff. So you test more in, in, in simulation, and that's how you solve the problem for embedded systems on the whole. You know, and the actual what, what the assumption there is that you that you evaluate your system, um, you know, as close to its edges as you can to simulate all of the behaviors in the system. Um, and that the actual act of burning the silicon, or you know, whatever your version of that is, depending on you, you know, your your stuff, um, that's pretty reliable. You're unlikely to get too many mistakes there. It's the design of the system where the hard part is. So that's the stuff where you focus you, the majority of your testing effort. And then you can do other things. So so I have I have one client that actually has a little farm of robots that test physical things. So they put cards in machines and stuff like that to 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 evaluate to evaluate things. So so it depends how far you want to go. I think that the engineering thinking is rather than thinking what are the technical limits of you know how how do I limit myself because it's hard to test this stuff and rather starting from we're definitely going to test this stuff how far do we have to go to be able to test it and how do we make our lives as easy as we can and one of the impacts of that is it starts you architecting the software somewhat differently so whatever the nature of your software when you start talking about automated testing the difficult bits are the bits that touch the real world so UIs are more difficult than the business logic. Databases are more dis difficult than the business logic. Even something as simple as writing to a file system is more complicated than the, 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 the logic. If you can test things in memory in a computer, that's the most efficient way of testing things. And so you tend to push those things to the edges of the system, evaluate all of the other behaviors, and then you kind of test those just those little thin bits of software that actually interact with the real world. Yeah. So the principle is is very similar. I mean, a test environment is just another form of a simulation, you could say. Yeah. So the principles are are really really similar. It's just the um, the way it looks, perhaps in practice, is just a bit different. It's 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 one of the superpowers that we as software people have is that we have at our disposal almost the perfect experimental platform. Yeah. Because we've got these computers, and these days we've got the cloud. We can spin up whatever we, we can create these little imaginary universes in which to evaluate our software, and yeah. we should take we should just really take advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so now we've sort of talked more sort of strategy and philosophy. I want to get into some more sort of pointed uh, technical questions. Um, we don't have too much time, so let's see how many we can get through. Um, so Cassia asks. What Git, Git branch strategy do you consider the most efficient? Uh, the most efficient strategy, and again, there's evidence for this. I'll point you in the direction of the Accelerate book and the State of DevOps report, is to work on master all of the time. So you work on master locally, and then when you do not, you, you make many, you, you divide your work up, so you do many small changes. You commit multiple times per day, and you sync that with Origin Master. That's the most efficient way of working measurably. And you, one way to think about this is the definition of continuous integration. So both of the words matter in continuous integration, the continuous word and the integration word. Yeah. Um, again, check out my YouTube channel. Describes this in a bit more detail, complete with quotes of where I got some of this from. So continuous integration is about evaluating our changes as close to continuously that, that we get. The original idea 
that, that the, they had on the C2 team when Kent Beck and his mates came up with the idea was that if you could imagine working and as soon as you, you know, you had anything that was kind of close, it instantly appeared on my screen and I knew that it all worked and it worked with my software. How wonderful would that be? And we try to get as close to that as we can. Now, the cost of continuous integration means that we have to find a way of working that allows us to commit changes. And certainly, if you practice my flavor, continuous delivery, and those changes may end up in production for features that aren't finished yet. Mm. That's the cost. That's the downside. But now let's think about branching. Any form of branching, whatever nature of branching, is about hiding change. So immediately, it's in competition or, or, or at a different end of a spectrum to continuous integration. Continuous mm. integration is about exposing change and branching, any form of branching, is about hiding change. Part of the definition of continuous integration, I'm never quite sure it's possible that I added this to the definition of continuous integration because I, I was certainly saying this stuff and popularizing it at the time. And I can't remember it. it, it uh, I can't remember whether actually when Martin Fowler wrote it down, whether he was listening to me or not at that point. But part of the definition of continuous integration is that um, is that you should be integrating to the main line, the shared truth of your system at least once per day. Mm. So if you have any branching strategy, you know, um, GitHub, GitFlow or anything like those, whatever github flow whatever branching strategy if any of those branches hold your software away from the releasable main line of your software for more than a day it doesn't class as continuous integration hmm. which surprises people but i think it's an important idea because continuous integration brings a whole with a cost with the cost of working in these small little changes hmm. uh, but uh, so you have to think differently about change. Again, check out my YouTube channel. There's a good video on this. Um, the but but um, working working and holding your feature until it's finished on a branch, if that lasts for more than a day, doesn't count as continuous integration. And the data says you are working less efficiently and you create lower statistically. You are you 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 work less efficiently and you're creating lower quality software uh, if you work that way. Now. That doesn't mean that you're always going to be working slower or creating worse software. It just means you have a higher likelihood statistically that that's what's going to happen if you work that way. So continuous integration is the best way that we know measurably to create high-quality software efficiently. But it, it, it requires a mindset change. Right. And I, I think this leads into to our next question, which is more sort of a, an Agile-related question than a POC question but of course they're related um so this comes from garth gilmore a fellow speaker from from goto and he asks if it's possible for iteration sizes to become too small for example does two weeks leave enough room for design decisions and the everyday disruptions such as speaking at conferences uh that affect teams i'm not sure so, so i see iterations differently and I think that working in a continuous delivery, part of my definition of continuous delivery, I've mentioned it already, is working so that your software is always in a releasable state. That means after every commit. So after, I, if, I'm working, if, I, if I'm working the way that I've described, if the teams that I work on, we'd all be committing 
maybe once every 10 or 15 minutes. We make mm. a tiny change and we commit it. It's going to go through our continuous integration system. It's going to be evaluated. It's going to go through our continuous delivery system. It's going to be evaluated to, to a releasable outcome. And it could be released into production. So now I've got to start to adopt strategies that allow me to work that way. But that means it doesn't really matter how long the features take because it doesn't. It, that, that I've separated out my ability to make change with my ability to release. Mm. So, so that doesn't mean. So, so my preferred way of organising this from a from a you know um, a planning point of view or you know a work organisation point of view is Kanban. So, so you you kind of maintain a backlog of stuff and you just work on what's the you just pick the next the next in you know priority to work on when 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 you come free you go and look what's what's the next highest priority and you you pick that and you start working on that that's is that's essentially what kanban is there's a bit more to kanban than that but essentially that's that you know that's the planning part of it um what that that's the most efficient way of making change the the downside for kanban is a human one i, I worked on some of the teams in kind of the early part of this century um, that we're experimenting with lean lean techniques, uh, yeah. and um, one of the things that I, that I observed that I believe that we saw on those teams was that after a while of working Kanban, it just kind of feels like you're on a treadmill. Mm -hmm. You're just churning feature after feature. There are no highs and lows. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I that I value from a more iterative approach classic agile iteration or you know scrum sprints that kind of thing is that it kind of gives you a more human cycle mm. you kind of get together at the start of the iteration and have cake and discuss what you're going to work on and all that kind of stuff you can get together at the end of the cycle and celebrate that you you know what you did and so on it doesn't have to align with releases it doesn't have to realign with features it, you know but it just gives you a bit more of a human cycle. So, so my preferred approach is that I use the iteration, iterative cycle to give a little bit of the light and shade for kind of a human, you know, a nice working environment so that we can just kind of get together, celebrate our successes together, together do a retrospective and figure out how we can do better in future, those kinds of things. But the actual work is we, we do tiny change, tiny change, tiny change. Again, this is one of those slippery things. The challenge here is that it changes the way that you think about design. I think for the better. So my, my belief is that you never build a complex system by sitting down and thinking really hard and planning out a complex system. You build a complex system by starting off with a simple system that works, and then you grow it bit by bit by bit. So I think of software design and architecture and development as much more of an evolutionary process. And um, our job is to kind of guide and steer that evolution. We can figure out which, which branches are going in the wrong direction and which are going in the right direction. And so we can work much more iteratively. It gets back to the kind of stuff we talked at, at, the, at the beginning where um, of, um, I don't, can't remember, we did talk about it at the beginning, but the small teams more independently of one another and, and, and having more, you know, making choices and, and directing their own discipline. You want to scale up, you want to kind of distribute decision making. And one of the ways in which you do that is by making these small changes and not trying to coordinate everything together. So I think that, I think that it has a positive impact on design, but I think probably not in the way that um, the person asking the question was thinking when they asked the question.
maybe. Uh, we don't have a lot of time left. Actually, let's just say a couple of minutes before we have to wrap up. Um, I see about three questions around a similar topic, so I'll just get you to a free form and answer. This is actually around code reviews and pull requests. So from what I'm hearing from what you're saying, if you automate all the things and your changes are really small, it might not be necessary, or what's your opinion around that? Uh, so, so I value code reviews, but I think that they're not as good as pair programming, which is a continuous code review, but a whole bunch of other things too. Uh, again, check out my YouTube channel. Good video on pair programming. Um, the I, so so my my preference is to work doing pair programming. That gives you this kind of continuous review. That works in regulated industries. Counts as a review. It's not a problem. Um, and I think that you get much more out of it than just the code review. So that's the thing. You you can. You can add code reviews as part of your deployment pipeline, as part of the cycle. It adds complexity and it has a tendency to slow things down. It's mm. not ideal. So, so my preference is to do is to do pair programming for that. Well, have you come across any good software for that? Given that we a lot of us work from home. Yeah, so I, 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 I've done quite a lot of re remote pairing. I, I, I confess I haven't done any since the pandemic because I'm most of the software I develop these days is on my own. Um, mm -hmm. But um, but uh, I've done a lot of remote pairing. I was once part of it. I, I was based, I'm based near London, uh, and I used to, I used to have an office in London, and I was, my primary work with, was with a team in Chicago. So we used to do remote pairing when our uh, time zones overlapped. So I don't think you need anything very sophisticated, to be honest. You need to be able to share, share a screen, mm -hmm. and you need to be able to talk to each other. The next step, Beyond that is it's kind of nice to be able to see each other. So you can sort of something like, you know, Zoom or Teams or one of those kind of tools is kind of handy to be able to share a screen and be able to see each other. Um, I've worked for a trading company. They had quite a lot of money and they invested in big screens that they put at the end of the desk. So it was kind of a bit like the Chicago office was an extension of the London office. I could kind of look down and I could see my, my colleagues you know, uh, in the screen as though they were sitting next to me almost. So it's almost like VR. I think VR is going to be a big deal for this kind of thing um, but in the future. But right but right now, um, I don't think you need very much. I think you just need the ability to share share a screen and 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 swap who's actually you need you need a you know, if you're doing the fine-grained commits that I'm talking about, you can kind of you know you write a test, run it, see it fail, write some code, run it, see it pass, refactor it, uh, commit it, and then swap over who do who, you know. Then, then I can pull that change, and I will write the test, and and, and I'll you know mm -hmm. I'll take over, and we can swap backwards and forwards. It, it's relatively straightforward. There are some if you Google for this stuff, there's some stuff on this online about remote pairing, but I don't think it needs any great tech to be able to achieve it more than the normal sorts of tools that we use these days. Wonderful. Well, I think that's a, a nice note to end on, on, on collaboration and the fact that we can still do it uh, in these times. Um, before we wrap up for, uh, for today, um, I just want to let you know that uh, Dave is actually a, a really prolific contributor to the tech space, especially in this area. So it's not just his book on LeanCup that's coming up. Um, he has a mailing list for regular updates. Um, he also has his YouTube channel. As I said, I've watched it in preparation for this. Um, it's really great. They're more bite-sized than maybe a conference talk, 10, 20 minutes. Um, so 
perfect to watch while you're cooking tea or something. Um, also, of course, you can find Dave Farley on Twitter. It's just at Dave Farley 77. All of this information will be placed uh, in the description. So I would like to thank Dave so much. I've certainly uh, learned a lot today and I hope that our viewers have as well. Um, and Dave, I just want to check in with you before we wrap up. Is there anything else that you would uh, like to remind our audience about in terms of what you're doing at the moment? Uh, the, the one, the one, the, the, the one, the, the one bit of sales that I will do. Two bits of sales. <laughs> I, have, I have some nice uh, online training courses. Uh, if you go to courses.cd.training, you'll find my stuff. Um, and uh, I'm writing another book. So I've published, just announced the publication of my C continuous delivery pipelines book today, uh, which is a, ma a practical manual. I'm writing another book, which is about software, about software engineering and, and talks about the philosophy and approach that we've discussed a little bit today. That's going to be coming later in the year, so keep an eye out for that too. Wonderful. So thanks so much again to Dave and our audience. I really hope you found it informative. I definitely did. We also have um, more AMAs coming up with some other, some more excellent names. Uh, so please stay close to us and uh, we hope that you enjoy our content moving forward.